Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. What are her vitals? Blood pressure is 60 over 40. That can't be right. Check again. John. Joan, we're gonna check again. Let me see your arm. Same reading. 60 over 40. I think she's in shock. Let's call Dr. Bertineau. I can't see. I'm blind. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the mysterious death of Joan Robinson Hill. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Joan Robinson Hill was only 38 years old in March of 1969. An experienced equestrian since she was a kid, Joan led an active and healthy life. She had won several national titles in the sport and continued to participate until the end. She didn't seem a prime candidate for a horrible illness. Yet that's exactly what seemed to have happened. After a few days of extreme nausea and vomiting, Joan was hospitalized, and her symptoms worsened until death. Sure, a horrible illness can appear suddenly and unexpectedly. But the circumstances surrounding Joan's death were mysterious enough that they led to a murder investigation with seemingly only one possible culprit. But, as tends to be in the case here on Unsolved Murders, that was hardly the end of the mystery, which only spiraled further out of control. For now... Let's take you back to 1968, when Joan was still healthy and married to her husband, John. By this point, however, the marriage was far from healthy. Hey, John. John! Hey. I was kind of in the middle of a song. Sorry, I didn't hear you. It's okay. I'm taking Boot to practice. Can you look over the papers that the bank sent? I don't know where those are, honey. They're in the same place I always put your mail. On your dresser, by your watch, and it's getting to be a big pile. Okay. So please look through them. The last thing we need is to be late on a payment again. Okay, okay. I'll look at them. Thank you. As you'll remember from our last episode, John spent over $100,000 on a music room in their house in River Oaks. His oil baron father-in-law, Ash, refused to fund the music room as he thought it was a trivial project, and John still owed him money for the house he'd helped the couple buy. After all, he had already bought his daughter Chatsworth Farm just five years before they decided to buy another house. Once John got a loan from the bank and built the opulent music room, it became his obsession. He would spend all of his free time in there, spending an estimated 20 hours a week practicing and playing. Joan became angry at just how much money he was spending. 
which John interpreted as her getting mad about him pursuing his passion. Okay, I'll be right back with those waters. Hello, welcome to Patty's. Oh, Joan, how are you? I'm doing all right. Do you have time to talk? For you always. What's going on? It's John. We've been having some issues. What kind of issues? I mean, what kind of issue does every couple run into? Money. Well, now, you all are a bit more well-off than every other couple, though. Surely you have a little bit of a cushion. Any cushion we may have had has surely been turned into soundproofing for that damn music room he's building. He's still working on that? Never done! It's at least ten times what he thought it would cost when he started doing this whole thing. The music room wasn't the only source of money issues, though. Chatsworth Farm was not living up to the dreams Joan had for it. She'd envisioned a place where she could breed horses and visitors could learn to ride. But there wasn't much interest in the latter. This business venture was losing money. The trainer, who had worked there since it opened in 1963, quit in 1967. It was clear the farm wasn't profitable. To make matters worse, the trainer didn't like John, and the feeling was mutual. By 1969, John wanted to sell the farm. The very idea made Joan miserable, however. This was her dream and her passion. She convinced her friend, Diane Sedegast, who lived in Dallas, to come out to Houston to work as a trainer for a bit. In this time of financial difficulties and marital struggles, John began to look outside of the marriage for romance and served Joan her walking papers. After Ash intervened, the couple tried to survive, but their young son, Boot, revealed to his mother that John had a separate apartment with his mistress, Anne. Joan? Are you okay? I knew it. I knew it. I suspected it, and I... Suspected what? John still has that other apartment. He's probably still supporting that Anne tramp. I have to invite Van over. Are you sure that's a good idea? Van, Van, I'm sorry this is so sudden, but you're my best friend in the whole world, and please come over here. I have to talk to somebody. Everything's falling apart. At this point, Joan was frantic and unhinged. Her friend, Van Maxwell, did rush over, and as soon as she arrived, Joan decided to play an impromptu game of bridge. She poured large drinks for all of her friends and then led everyone upstairs to play in the music room, where John, as per usual, was in his own world. Joan, Eunice, Diane, and Van began their game of bridge at one end of the room while, hardly more than ten yards away, John played piano. Everyone had to yell to be heard over the piano. Joan took the opportunity to trash talk John in bits and pieces. When he'd stop playing or walk closer in the room, she would stop. This game of chicken continued as the game of bridge became less and less important. I'm going to the lawyer on Monday. It's just about over between us. He can hear you. Can't we discuss this later? I want him to hear. Then I'm leaving. No, stay and finish the game, please. Only if you stop talking about John that way. He's right here in this room. At least write notes if you have to say something. Okay. And that's just what Joan did. She loudly scribbled notes detailing all of John's indiscretions. 
John suddenly put a romantic ballad on the record player. It clearly had a special meaning to Joan. She looked up at her husband as it played, and she began crying. Van's discomfort only got worse, and she left to go to the restroom. Her seat abandoned, John came by and stood by the table. Breaking the awkward lack of conversation, Diane suggested that Joan and John should dance to the song. The oddities only spiraled from there. When Van got back from the restroom, she saw the two in each other's arms, dancing romantically. Joan's head burrowed into John's shoulder. Van then left the house entirely, the night too strange for her to take anymore. Joan's father flew into town two days later, the morning of Sunday, March 16th. He called Joan to come pick him up, but Diane answered the phone. She let him know that Joan was still sleeping and feeling symptoms of the flu. Ash said his condolences and told him he'd take a taxi to meet them. When Joan did wake up, she looked ill, but she seemed happy as she fixed coffee for herself, Diane, and Eunice. Eunice mentioned that she saw John giving her an injection of something the night before. She didn't know if it was some kind of medicine she was prescribed, perhaps for diabetes. Joan said that it was true that he gave her a shot because he knew she'd been feeling sick. It was some kind of fast relief. Being a surgeon, he had easy access to all kinds of medications. Joan then went on to give a completely different review of her husband than the one they were treated to the night before. She said he made her so happy and that he'd made her feel better last night than she'd ever felt in her whole life. She thought things were going to finally work out for them. But while they were having their coffee, Joan suddenly became sick and had to rush to the bathroom. Having just thrown up what little she'd had to eat and drink that morning, she decided to go back to bed, where she'd stay for most of the day. Her husband frequently went into their room to check up on her, and at around noon he said he was going out to get medication to give her another shot. He told Diane to get her a Coke, and when Diane did, Joan threw up again after the first sip. Hello? I need to speak with the doctor. Who is this? Is the doctor in? Well, may I ask who is calling before... I must speak with the doctor. I'm sorry, but... Strange calls like this happened several times throughout that Sunday. The woman who called Joan's house was clearly using a fake voice. Later, John invited a guest over, a musician named Ralph Lees, to go over an upcoming performance they had on Tuesday. And after they were done around dinner time, John went out to dinner with Boot, Diane, and Eunice. The conversation was awkward, as in addition to all the couples fighting they had witnessed, Ash had also come into town with bad news for their friend Diane. Ash informed her he would now only be offering her $200 a month to run Chatsworth Farm, plus small commission percentages from riding lessons. Adjusting for inflation, that's about $1,300 a month in 2017, right around the poverty line. Ash said the farm was a sieve for money and just a hobby for Joan. Diane refused to continue on at the new rates, and so she and Eunice were set to leave the next day. On their way home from dinner, they picked up some orange juice to help settle Joan's stomach. John gave it to her and then left the house to, in his words, meet a musician. He wasn't back until after midnight, and Joan threw up repeatedly throughout the night. We should head out now. Agreed. The last thing I want is to be stuck on the highway all day. Oh, hey, John. Hello, ladies. So I guess this is goodbye? I guess so. 
How is Joan? Oh, she's been up and down all night. I'm going to stop by the pharmacy and get her some more medication on my way to work. Well, is she all right? She's got a virus. The two went to Joan to see her one last time, and while Eunice brought her some water, Diane asked Joan if she wanted them to stay until she felt better. Joan felt awful about the offer her dad had made and said she didn't need them to stick around, especially in an uncomfortable environment. She'd discuss the whole matter with her later and figure something out. The women kissed Joan goodbye, and that was the last they'd see her. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. Hello? Mrs. Hill? I brought you some orange juice. Oh my word! Mrs. Hill! The Hills had two maids on staff named Effie and Archie Green, who also happened to be husband and wife. John had given Effie instructions to not disturb Joan for any reason as she was sick in bed. However, on Tuesday morning, March 18th, Effie went in after John left for work and discovered a horrific sight. Joan had soiled herself and was lying in the dried remains of her excrement. She was lying on top of two towels which were also soiled and appeared to contain blood. Come on, Joan. Let's get you to the powder room to get you cleaned up. As she was moving her, Effie realized that Joan's face was blue. The two tried to call both John Hill and Joan's parents, but got through to no one. John was playing tuba at an elementary school at the time, but he headed back to the house immediately after. And though Ash and his wife didn't answer, Joan's mother was anxious to see her daughter anyway. So, after a downtown trip to check up on the stock market, Ash dropped her off to see Joan while he went to another business appointment. Once Archie led her into the home, Joan's mother found Joan lying in feces and vomit as John stood by the bed. Why hadn't John done anything about this? After all, he was a doctor. Couldn't he have done something to help her condition? Or taken her to the hospital knowing it was so serious? And even disregarding the fact that he was a doctor, wouldn't he at least have cleaned her up at some point? Wouldn't anyone for their sick wife? Though those kinds of questions surely were floating around in people's heads, John was quick to state the obvious. They had to get Joan to a hospital. He said there was no need to wait for an ambulance. He'd drive her himself to Sharpstown General Hospital. This was an odd choice. It was 45 minutes away and was a brand new hospital in suburban Houston. It had no emergency room or an ICU at the time. Just 15 minutes away was the Texas Medical Center, home to world-class hospitals and every possible diagnostic facility. 
The morning had everyone in such a strange state of mind, however, that no one found John's choice odd. But it was indeed very, very odd. You might even say suspicious. What happened to our child? Her illness has progressed and gotten significantly worse. We're taking her to Sharpstown General. She'll get special care there. Joan, honey, do you want me to come with you? I'm burning up. I don't know. I'm just so sick. I'm going with her. Rhea later recalled that John seemed to drive like a snail on their way to the hospital. And tensions in the car worsened when Joan cried out to her mother that she was going blind. John called this a blackout. When they finally got to the hospital, a nurse rushed out with a wheelchair to take her to a private room. They couldn't believe her blood pressure when they first read it as 60 over 40. They thought there had to be some issue with the machine. Ideal blood pressure is more than 90 over 60 and less than 120 over 80. They checked again and they got the same dire reading. And the nurse decided Joan was in a state of shock, meaning her blood passage to tissues was too low, causing cellular injury and tissue malfunction. The nurse called Dr. Walter Bertineau, who was Joan's primary care physician, though he had never seen Joan other than socially. He thought she simply had a flu based on the way John had described her symptoms. But when he got to the hospital, saw the state she was in, and ordered IV fluids, he now thought she had some kind of food poisoning. He still wasn't sure, so he asked another doctor, Frank Lanza, for his professional opinion. Dr. Lanza thought she was in septic shock, which is a condition in which an infection causes organ damage and leads to extremely low blood pressure and problems with cellular metabolism. He ordered more extensive blood cultures, but this kind of test could take up to 72 hours to get results. And by just six hours after her admission, a nurse noticed that Joan wasn't passing any urine through the kidney catheter, indicating kidney failure. Doctors increased IV fluids to try to stimulate the kidneys to create more urine. At this point, Ash came into the room, promising to bring his daughter her favorite roses the next day, but the nurses kicked him out. By 8 p.m., she was in grave condition. The increased IV fluids had no effect on the kidneys, and her blood urea nitrogen level was elevated. A kidney specialist, Dr. Bernard Hicks, was brought in and immediately was able to diagnose severe kidney failure. Since there was no dialysis machine at that hospital, Dr. Hicks wanted to perform a peritoneal dialysis, which is where a tube is placed in the stomach and a second tube has a blood purifying solution forced in and out of it. The procedure essentially turns the peritoneal cavity into an artificial kidney. But he wanted John's permission before beginning the procedure, and John had left the hospital hours ago. He was, unsurprisingly, in his music room when the doctors called at 9.15 p.m. to summon him, and he didn't show up at the hospital to give his consent until a couple hours later after 11. That is when the doctors began the procedure. There seems to be slight improvement. Yeah? Well, honestly, I don't know if I even want to go that far. But she's at least stabilizing. Her blood pressure has raised mildly, and the peritoneal dialysis seems to be working. It's going to be under Dr. Hicks' charge now, so I'm going to be heading home. I'm going to spend the night here. There's a couch in the patient records room I saw. Yes, that's fine. We'll be back tomorrow morning to get her back in shape. 
Thank you. After Dr. Bertineau left around midnight, Doctors Lanza and Hicks left around 1.30 a.m. when Joan seemed stable. It was now March 19th. She was in the care of nurses and a night resident who conducted the patient census. Joan, honey, I'm going to be here. I'll be just down the hall if you need anything. Just get some rest. John left the room while the nurses continued to check on Joan's vitals. Unfortunately, only one hour later... John. All doctors to the ER. <coughs> In a horrific scene, Joan struggled for air when a rush of blood erupted from her mouth. The resident rushed in to give her a shot of adrenaline, but it was too late. Joan Robinson Hill was dead. As the news of Joan's death reached John and Joan's parents, the events that happened next get a bit confused and blurry. John was distraught, sobbing and screaming, and he called his close friend and neighbor, Dr. Oates, to come visit him in the hospital. (laughs) I can't believe it. My beautiful wife, God. (laughs) I know. I know, John. You must feel awful. I'm so sorry. Joan, no, not my Joan. (laughs) There, there, John. You have to pull yourself together. I know. I know. Now, is there anything I can do? Anything I can help you with? (laughs) Can you get a hold of the city gas cop funeral home and have them get her body and prep it for burial? Of course. Dr. Hill? How are you holding up? I'm barely holding up at all. My condolences. I can't imagine how hard this must be for you. Now, I don't want to seem too insensitive, but we must get the autopsy done. Autopsy? Yes. You know as well as I do that that's the law. She died in our hospital within 24 hours of admission. The county coroner has to do it. Yes, yes, of course. But that autopsy was never performed. The funeral home came to pick up Joan's body around 6 a.m. By 6.40 a.m., when the funeral home's most meticulous employee, Mrs. Verna B. Cummings, arrived at work, Joan's body had already been embalmed by Dick Chalk, the night embalmer. The way John told Dr. Oates how to handle the funeral arrangements was incredibly suspicious. After all... John was a doctor. He was aware of the law and the need for a proper autopsy. So why didn't he follow procedure? Why was there such a rush to get the body embalmed? A speedy burial could, hypothetically, circumvent any suspicious findings. But in reality, it only drew more attention to Joan's already odd death. Whatever the reason, by the time the pathologist who was to perform the autopsy, Dr. Arthur Morse, arrived at the funeral home, Joan's body had been drained of her blood and other vital fluids. He performed the best autopsy he could in light of the circumstances and concluded that she passed away from pancreatitis. But why would Joan go from stable condition to dead in the morgue in just one hour? Her death was also much more violent than a traditional pancreatitis attack. Perhaps the nurses slipped with the medication. Or maybe they figured the woman in critical condition was already a lost cause, 
and did not pay as close attention as they should have. Regardless, Joan Hill died, and she died painfully. Yes? Mr. Ash Robinson is here to see you. Send him in. I presume you've read over the material I sent. Statements from several doctors you've consulted. Each one saying they doubt the prognosis that pancreatitis was the cause of your daughter's death. And my condolences to you, sir. Thank you very much. Now, I believe my Joan didn't pass away from any kind of natural illness at all. I believe her husband John murdered her. Ash met with Assistant District Attorney I.D. McMaster on March 21st, the day Joan's funeral was supposed to be held. He explained in detail the events leading up to Joan's death, and also shared the strange way the original autopsy came to pass. All right, Ash, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the Harris County Medical Examiner go to the funeral home immediately to look the body over before the funeral. He should be able to get blood and urine samples, and we can see if you have a case from there. The medical examiner did just that, and by the end of March, he had his conclusion. He found a completely different cause of death than Dr. Morse. However, it was not the answer Ash was expecting. He claimed it was acute focal hepatitis, but said he could find no evidence of any poisoning. But Joan's angry father would not be so easily defeated in what he saw as his pursuit of justice. Money can extend nearly any pursuit. And Ash had money to spend. He immediately hired lawyer Frank Briscoe and Dr. Milton Helpern, the chief medical examiner for New York City, who he would even fly out to Texas to help him build a case against John. He also continued to employ his private detectives, who were following John around. In the meantime, John was trying to move on with his life. He was now free to be with Anne, and he took that opportunity almost immediately. In June of 1969, just three months after Joan passed away, John and Anne were married. But Ash's public statements about John began hounding him, and he was sick of being followed everywhere by investigators. Listen, McMaster, how is this guy still walking around free? Look, I'm trying to help you, but I can't just launch a murder investigation. We have another grand jury set for the summer. While a known murderer walks free. You have to stop calling him a murderer, too. At least in any public statements. And why is that? He's suing you, Ash, for libel and slander, saying you're hurting his business. That little rat is suing me? We have to get him. John's libel lawsuit fizzled out and went nowhere. But Ash's pursuit against John never stopped. In that summer of 1969, a grand jury was presented with all the available evidence and decided not to indict Hill for murder. A second grand jury came to the same conclusion, though they would eventually order an exhumation of the body. We'll get to more on that in a bit. Because Ash Robinson's efforts to see John Hill behind bars would soon get assistance from a very unlikely source. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Excuse me, you're not supposed to come in here without an appointment. Oh, I think you'll excuse my disregard for the proper way of doing things when you hear what I have to say. You have ten seconds to walk out of that door before I call security. Do you know who I am, Mr. Robinson? You should. You've had people spying on me and my husband. Well, 
ex-husband. And Kurth? In the flesh. Now, you've been making a lot of noise about Dr. Hill, and I'd like to add my voice on top of that noise. Helps it all go down smoother with something sweet. What exactly are you saying? He left me. John, the great doctor, apparently lost interest. And that under a year that we were married, well, let's just say it won't be the inspiration for romance novels. I see. I do too. I see the John that you saw before. The one Joan saw. He's scum. It'll be easy to convince everyone. A third grand jury heard the case in February of 1970. Remember that exhumation and autopsy ordered after the second grand jury? Well, the New York doctor Ash had hired was one of ten doctors who performed this third autopsy on Joan, and they now concluded that she suffered a massive infection that led to death from either meningitis or septicemia. They noted to the grand jury that they could not determine what initially caused the infection because of the early illegal embalming process. This was enough to plant a seed in the panel's mind, along with Anne Kurth's testimony that John had told her he had murdered Joan. This was huge. Would John really confess to his one-time lover that he murdered his wife? He was trying to convince Anne that he would leave Joan, after all. But would she really want him to resort to murder? Would she marry him knowing that? Or was she so angry at her ex, she was willing to say anything to ruin his life? There still wasn't quite enough to prove John had beyond a shadow of a doubt poisoned his wife. But the prosecutors thought of a new tact they could take. The incredibly rare charge of murder by omission. They essentially claimed John's care and lack thereof killed Joan. The jury voted in favor of this 10 to 2, and it was Texas's first time ever charging someone with that crime. On February 15, 1971, John Hill's murder trial began. Did you notice anything unusual at Dr. Hill's apartment the week of Mrs. Robinson Hill's illness? I did, though I didn't realize it at the time. I went into the bedroom and I saw three petri dishes with something red in them. He told me it was just an experiment and to stay away from them. I mean, I believed him. He was always bringing his work home. Did you notice anything else unusual that week? I noticed some pastries in the fridge, which was strange because he didn't normally have that kind of stuff at the apartment. And he seemed to get very stern, telling me not to eat them. If you'll recall, when John brought Joan and her friends some pastries, he made sure the ladies didn't eat the pastry intended for Joan. Well, look what the cat dragged in. Oh, John, thank you so much. Ooh, this one looks so good. No, no, uh, that one's for Joan, unfortunately. But here, Diane, this one is just as good. Maybe even better. Don't tell her I said that. Anne's testimony, however, was about to become derailed when she gave an account of John's attempt to kill her as well. All throughout, she had been warned by the judge not to be as theatrical as she was, but it didn't slow her testimony at all. It was just one month into our marriage. I still had so much love in my heart. We might have gotten into some small argument, something silly, when suddenly... 
He smashed my side of the car into a bridge. Order. Order, Miss Kurth. Please just answer his questions. I'm sorry. After he tried to crash the car, what happened next? He pulled a syringe from his pocket and tried to get it into me. I was able to knock it out of his hand, but he had another one waiting. And what did he do with that one, if anything? He tried to get that syringe into me. Was he attempting to treat you or harm you? Do you know? Yes, I know. Because he told me how he had killed Joan with a needle. The defense jumped at this outburst. They demanded a mistrial because they had not had a chance to prepare for an accusation of direct murder. The case was simply murder by omission or a failure to act upon Joan's sickness. The judge granted the request and a new trial would take place in November of 1972. On September 24, 1972, Hill and his third wife, Connie, were returning home to Houston from a medical conference. And before we get into it, yes, an accused murderer still managed to get three women to marry him. And while the couple was settling back into their house, a masked intruder forced his way in. John, are we expecting anyone? Certainly not at this hour. On September 24th of 1972, John Hill was shot dead in his River Oaks home, though Connie was spared. Hill was a wealthy man. A robbery gone wrong would seem to be the most obvious reason for his murder. That's certainly the story Bobby Wayne Vandiver went with. I'm not telling you anything. You want to make this harder on yourself? I figure you waste my time, I'll waste yours. Huh, real smart, playing chicken with a cop. Bobby was a small-time criminal who was turned in after being spotted near the crime scene. He refused to cooperate with the police investigation at first, but it didn't matter. Van Diver was formally charged with murder after breaking down and confessing as the investigation dragged on. It wasn't only me. What now? It wasn't. I didn't do it alone. Van Diver immediately turned over his girlfriend, Marsha McKittrick, and infamous local madam, Lilla Paulus, who he claimed helped him plan and execute the murder. Bobby claimed Lilla had paid him $5,000 for the murder. He also made claims that it was Ash Robinson who wanted John Hill dead and put the contract out. Accusing the victim's former father-in-law of paying to have him killed is a damning claim. Adjusted for inflation, if Ash were the purse strings behind the hit, he would have shelled out the equivalent of $28,000 for the murder. Ash spared no expense for his daughter in her life. But this was one expensive murder if he truly were responsible. Well, the police didn't buy Van Diver's motive, even though he was a career criminal who had seen his fair share of the inside of a cell. A botched robbery that ended in the death of someone wasn't outside the realm of possibility for him. But why confess to something so intricate? Is it possible he wasn't hired by Lilla to murder John Hill, but by someone else? John was certainly a sleaze. It's not absurd to think he left a trail of jilted lovers. Any other possibility seemed like quite a stretch, though, and Van Diver's confession made too much sense to doubt it. A grand jury chose to indict Bobby and Marcia for first-degree murder and Lilla as an accomplice. They set Bobby's trial for September 1973. However, once again in this strange case, it was a trial that would never occur. Bobby also had a wife, Vicky, 
who was in the midst of trying to get custody of her kids back. While he was supposed to be under house arrest, his murder trial was postponed until April of 1974, and the district attorney had a soft spot that would come back to bite him. He allowed Bobby to join his wife on a trip to Dallas for the custody hearings. However, Bobby went on the run and tried to lay low in Longview, Texas. His attempts to lay low were entirely unsuccessful, though. A Longview police officer was suspicious of the newcomer to the town, and once he learned his real name, he confronted him at a cafe. The officer claimed Bobby pulled a gun on him, and so he shot Bobby, killing him. Joan, John, and now Bobby. This was the third death stemming from this one relationship. After Bobby was shot, Marcia McKittrick was promised a shorter sentence if she would testify against Lilla Paulus, which she agreed to do. Marcia was sentenced to 10 years for being the getaway driver and was paroled after just five years. In the trial of Lilla Paulus, Marcia testified that Lilla had been given $25,000 by Ash to kill Dr. John Hill, and 5,000 of that was given to Bobby to actually do the deed. And for the second time, a family member testified against their own family. Lilla's daughter, Mary Jo Wood, said that their family had met Joan Robinson Hill through Diane Sedegast in 1963 and had met Joan's father, Ash Robinson, at the same time. She then said when she visited her mother in 1970, she overheard a call from Diane saying that Ash was looking to hire someone to put a hit on John. For her part, Diane Sedegast admitted that she had met Lilla before, but denied ever saying that Ash wanted to kill John. She also said, as far as she knew, Ash and Lilla had only met in person once, in 1968. The jury found Lilla guilty, and she wound up with the longest sentence of anyone, 35 years. Just one more trial would put an end to the seemingly endless aftermath of Joan's death. In 1977, Dr. John Hill's last wife, Connie, and her son, Robert, officially brought a civil suit against Ash Robinson, saying that he caused John's death. They were fully convinced Ash was seeking revenge for a crime John didn't even commit. Ash had never liked John, after all, and this wasn't private information. Anyone who had met him before Joan's death would say the same thing, and he screamed his theory that John was a murderer from the rooftops. Their civil suit didn't have much evidence, though. Lilla Paulus's daughter didn't testify this time around, so it was mainly up to Marsha McKittrick's testimony against Ash's. They both took polygraph tests, but in a final shocking twist, both tests said the two were telling the truth. Marsha seemed to fully believe Ash was responsible for John's death, but Ash also seemed to fully believe he wasn't. The jury acquitted Ash, and that was the end of that. So what actually happened to Joan Robinson Hill? Did she just come down with an unfortunate infection and her cheating husband couldn't care less as his wife passed away? Maybe Ann Kurth encouraged him to always look the other way so their problem would go away. Maybe the nurses didn't check up on her often enough in the hour after she stabilized. She seemed to be fine when the doctors left. Or perhaps it was something even more sinister. Did John intentionally poison her, spending that last strange week bringing home poisoned pastries and giving her shots? Could he have given her the hepatitis or meningitis through an injection? 
As a doctor, he'd have access to a wide range of hazardous chemicals, and it's possible none of them were detected because he knew the proper channels to get her embalmed before an autopsy could be performed. Let's look at the facts again. Joan was a socialite with an incredible talent and an overprotective father. John was a successful surgeon with a wandering eye who had begged Ash Robinson for money and been denied. John regularly cheated on Joan, and with the divorce laws at the time, Joan could use his infidelity in court and take him to the cleaners. Was John Hill cold-hearted enough to murder his own wife out of spite? A medical doctor should certainly know the signs of a dire illness and would also know what drugs might be misconstrued by an autopsy. Why would John give his ill wife a sedative? And why would he lead her on in the hopes of a reconciliation? To keep up reasonable doubt? So as sad as it is... For our money, Hill was her killer. He had motive, opportunity, and tried to rush the burial. But what do you think? An ill-informed mistake or malicious murder? And who do you think murdered Dr. John Hill? Weigh in on Twitter at Parcast Network or on Facebook.com slash Parcast with your own theories. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden, and written by Samantha Gurash and Kenneth Martin. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Kenna McEnroe, Manuna Ryan, and Steve Pinto. 